Welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast. I'm Ian McGarry, and as ever, we're here to bring you the news, views and analysis of the biggest stories in football. With regular host Johnny McFarlane enjoying the last days of freedom of movement in Europe, I'm very happy to be swapping shares with him for this particular instalment, and even more delighted to say that we've been joined by recently retired professional footballer and now assistant coach of Brighton and Hove Albion under-23s, the one and only Mr Liam Rostinia. Welcome to the podcast again, Liam. No, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And of course, the podcast would never be the same unless the man who's the best news anchor since Ron Burgundy, Duncan Castles, is here. <laughs> Stay oh, classy, yeah. Duncan. Stay classy. <laughs> As ever, we'd like to bring you some, uh, some news to start off the podcast. And of course, where else could we be starting with than... The uh, ongoing saga at Manchester United, Jose Mourinho, Paul Pogba at loggerheads, um, the possibility that Mourinho may even be replaced, even though it's only seven games into the Premier League season. Um, I just want to just impart a little bit of information that I've uh, been privy to in the last couple of days, and that is regarding the man everyone seems to see as Mourinho's replacement, the one Zinedine Zidane, former Real Madrid coach, obviously. I'm told, Duncan, that um, Zidane is very apprehensive about taking the job, that one of the reasons, as we all know, he uh, quit Real Madrid last summer was because he feared burnout. Now, what I'm told is he'd prefer to complete a year sabbatical and then go into a job next season when he feels rested and prepared for it. If that's the case, Duncan... How big a blow would that be for Ed Woodward and the Manchester United hierarchy? Because it seems to me there's not that many people out there who are credible or qualified to take on a job of that magnitude. I think you've got to break it down into a few parts. I mean, first of all, as, as we've discussed in the podcast, um, Ed Woodward and the Manchester United hierarchy did not go into the season with a, with a plan that they'd be changing manager during the season or at the end of the season. So they're kind of getting bounced into a situation where um, there is increasing pressure on Jose Mourinho and as a result, increasing pressure on them to respond to what's happening on the pitch and what results um, are being achieved and and what's happening in the dressing room. Um, And the the suggestion that they they should be moving for a replacement and that the the obvious candidate is Zinedine Zidane because he's on the market and... uh, and it's a step down from Real Madrid and, you know, according to some reports, wants the job. Um, I, think, I think you can also go and ask the question of whether Zidane actually wants that job and whether Zidane is um, the right person um, to come in in the summer uh, once he's had his year's break, never mind whether he's the, the right person to come into um, a, a particularly difficult situation um, early in the season. Um, I don't think it, it's, it's clear-cut that Zidane would be, if you had a free choice of um, replacement managers, if you do decide to replace Jose Mourinho, that Zidane would be the best option because the job is so demanding um, and, and beyond what he's done before um, at Real Madrid. Obviously, he's won three Champions League. Um, his time at Madrid has to be perceived as a success, but... Part of the problem Mourinho has faced as, as Manchester United manager is he, he's essentially had to run that top club, um, restructure that club from top to bottom. 
and that's not a role that Zidane had at Real Madrid. So you're, you'd be asking him to um, take on a, a more challenging position than he's had before, do more things than he's had to do in his, uh, in his previous job. And uh, I'm working a, a league also that he's never worked in before, and, and also in, a, in an environment where you're, you know, you're, you're looking at six realistic um, competitors for the title as opposed to three realistic competitors for the title. And I think there is a fair argument to say that the Premier League has um, more depth of competition uh, and more difficult matches against almost every opponent now than La Liga is. That's not to say necessarily that the Premier League is, is higher quality football, um, uh, more technically capable, but it's certainly um, a, a good argument that it, it is a more difficult test of any manager. So I think that this kind of assumption that um, if results continue to go badly, Manchester United will sack Mourinho because they've been preparing to do that for a while is wrong. I don't think they want to sack the manager. I don't think they want to change manager. And I'm not sure that it's safe to assume that Zinedine Zidane wants the job now or even wants the job in, um, in nine months' time. Liam, um, I, I agree with Duncan. And I don't think that it's uh, in any way immediately under threat, uh, Jose Mourinho's job. But um, you've been in dressing rooms before, I'm sure, where a manager's been changed mid-season. Is that a difficult thing for the players um, to adapt to or does sometimes it come as a relief if things have been going badly wrong? I mean, is, is it the right thing to, to effectively you know, jump ship, as it were, and, and go for someone else when you're already in a season? Yeah, it's a really good question, Ian. Um, but going back to Duncan's point about Manchester United have not having a plan of, of changing their manager at this time in the season or, or in the season at all, I just think they just haven't had a plan. And I think that's just been a, the problem. Um, and it's been, and now it's all come out, you know, the problems between Mourinho and Pogba and has he lost the dressing room? But when you don't have a plan and I look at their recruitment over the last few years, it just seems so scattergun. There's no real philosophy behind that club. You go back to the Ferguson years, everyone knew how they, how they would play. They would play with wingers, they would play attacking football and they would recruit in that manner. You see Mourinho changing from a back four to a back three for the West Ham game. And when you don't have that synergy within a football club it runs down through the whole club it runs down onto the pitch in the first team dressing room and at the moment they don't have a recipe for for success and I don't think it's fair to pin all the blame on on Jose Mourinho he showed his frustration in in the summer transfer window and not getting the players in that he felt he required to challenge at the top and you're seeing that now being played out on the football pitch and it his frustration would not just show in, the, in terms of the media or show every, dra- every day on the training ground, every day in his interactions with the players on a one-to-one basis. And I think it's just at the moment they need to, in terms of restructuring, if, if Jose Mourinho is not the man to take them forward, they, I don't think a new coach is going to solve the problems that Manchester United have. I think they need to look, since Edward Wood's come in, I think a lot of the problems there have to be, have to be pointed in his direction. Because for me, they need someone in there who's going to restructure the club. I'm looking at the academy teams at Manchester United, not bringing through the players they used to, not performing the same way that Manchester United's youth teams have done in the past. And I think they need to go back to being Manchester United, having a one-club philosophy. And then appointing a coach that fits in with that philosophy. And that's the only way you see Manchester City doing it. You see Chelsea going with Sarri trying to do it. Liverpool are the same. And Manchester United as a football club are going backwards. And it's unfair to pin all the blame on Jose Mourinho. I mean, ideally, Duncan, what, what Liam says is correct, that since the Rax Ferguson left, there's been a bit of a vacuum at Manchester United regarding um, 
overall forward planning and thinking, etc., etc. But we can't deny that this has been the worst domestic start to season in, in 30 years for United. But we also have to acknowledge that the core of what's been going on in terms of problematic relations and friction has come between Paul Pogba, the star player, and Mourinho, the, the, the very, very autocratic manager. I mean, I understand that you believe that that relationship may well have come to an end point. Is that, would that be accurate? I don't think it's come to an end point, but it's got itself into a very difficult position. And I think it, it actually the, the basis of that comes, to, comes down to some of the things that Liam has been mentioning there about the club not having a coherent philosophy and, and strategy and direction, um, not knowing what they want to do. And Paul Pogba Paul was brought into the club by Ed Woodward and by Jose Mourinho. There's no way in which you can absolve uh, Mourinho of that signing as you know, we know that certain football clubs buy players the managers don't want, but Mourinho was, was bought into that purchase. The problem, what, prob, one of the fundamental uh, problems within the relationship is that Paul Pogba was brought in from the club's point of view, not simply as a football player, but as a, as a marketing tool um, because of his social media presence, because of his, his status as, as the rising young star of international football, as, a, as being thought of as a potential future Ballon d'Or winner, United wanted him there because they thought they could make money off him off the field. Um, and that, uh, coupled with a, an agent who is um, open to uh, making financial gain whenever possible and has no hesitation about using the threat of, uh, of moving his clients to another club to gain advantage for himself and, and, and the player, has led to a position where Pogba, um, as I'm told by people at the club, thinks he is the most important figure in that dressing room, more important than the manager, more important than the other players. When it came, we saw Paul Pogba after the Wolves match um, go out and uh, basically attack the manager's um, strategy and tactics, um, use the phrase that attack, 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 um, one that would appeal to the Manchester United fans, one that looked to me was almost calculated to put the most difficulty for Mourinho with the press um, and with the support um, and he uh, from what I'm told from within the dressing room is Pogba feels he, he was in, entitled to do that um, he was justified in doing that and there wouldn't be um, great comeback against him for doing it because he is the important figure in the dressing room um, and that I think the, the situation with Mourinho is that he spent much of the start of the season trying to get Paul Pogba back on board after various frictions and conflict um, last season, so much I talked about in a column I did for the Daily Record this weekend. Um, he's tried, he made him the captain for the first part of the season, he allowed him to take penalties, he set up the tactical system in a way that, that um, Pogba preferred, allowing him to play on the left-hand side of the midfield as, he, as he'd asked for last season. When Pogba missed a penalty, he kept him on penalties. He was very um, positive about him in the press. Pogba had talked uh, early on in the season about the, when asked if he was happy at the club um, and asked about the manager, which said there were things he could say, something that would, um, which, which was obviously interpreted as um, antagonistic towards Mourinho. He ignored that, didn't say anything about it. And then when he was questioned, uh, when his tactics were questioned by the player, he took the decision that could go no further. 
um, essentially dressed Pogba down in front of his teammates, told him he would not captain the club again um, because he, 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 he hadn't shown himself to be captain material. And um, the response, I'm told, um, from other players is that uh, Pogba has taken that um, and not, um, not reflected the planet, not, not uh, changed his attitude. He's made it clear to the other players that he's not prepared to back down. He says he's told them, I'm told, that if the situation gets worse, he's prepared to go all the way and he's prepared to say that he doesn't want to play for the manager anymore. So if Pogba's um, serious about that, if that's not just dressing room bravado and, and the sense I get is that he is serious about it and he does feel that is a a viable option for him, then you can say that the relationship is um, is in a very, very dangerous place, particularly for Mourinho, but also dangerous for Pogba too. Liam, <clears throat> what happens here? Because obviously the manager is the one, if you feel, as I think we all agree, the buck stops with him regarding results, etc., etc. But if player power uh, effectively either influences or even worse takes over a dressing room whereby and we've heard very many stories in the past about this being the case where players stop playing or um not so, i wouldn't say down tools but they if you like they they would prefer the manager to go than him to carry on where does that leave the dressing room is is that anarchy or is it salvageable for Jose Mourinho uh, I think he's going to have to do a lot of work now to, to salvage what the, the situation, not just with Pogba, but you're seeing that Alexis Sanchez not in the squad, Anthony Martial, the things going on about him having going to see his child, um, have, uh, see his his wife give birth to his child. There seems to be a lot of friction in that dressing room, and, it, and what happens when you have that is the performances on the pitch decline. So what's really important now from from his point of view is that he he addresses the situation and that's either by having the power to sell players that he feels he can't work with anymore or he's going to be the one that, that ends up getting the brunt of it and, and leaving his job. So it's a huge job on his, on his hands now. And we've seen in the past with Jose, every time there seems to be the situation with his, with his style of management, he ends up leaving the football club. And is he, is he prepared to do that work? Is he prepared to you know, reshape the, the, the team? Is he prepared to, to be there in the long term and, and sell players? Because I can't, I can't see Paul Pogba um, being an asset to Manchester United on the pitch in, in this period of time at the moment under Jose Mourinho. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Um, and, and hopefully, because I'm a Man United fan at the end of the day, I just want to see performances on the pitch. And going back, one of the problems for me does come in terms of the recruitment. Now, in terms of, if you look at Sanchez and Pogba, for example, were they really signed to help the club on the pitch in a long time? You know, um, in terms of Pogba, he's great in terms of marketing and the way they marketed his signing. But I, if you take Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, he was a player that was signed just for his ability on the pitch. And what happened in that time was he was he was coached. He was playing a team that suited his ability and he became a star. Now, and that's what we saw Manchester United with David Beckham over the years is that they were these were players either coming through the youth system or being recruited to fit first and foremost on the football pitch. Now, I don't see that in, in terms of recruitment. They're going for big names, but they're not fitting him to the style of play. That, that Jose wants to play. And you've got a young lad in Marcus Rashford there who pr predominantly likes to play off the left-hand side of the pitch. Instead of him giving him the chance to play every week, he's gone and signed a 29-year-old Alexis Sanchez. And now Rashford, who's probably Manchester United's biggest asset long-term moving forward, finds himself in and out of the team. And another player who's probably not happy with his current situation. I think, Liam, I think you're absolutely right that um, Jose Mourinho has a lot of work to do in the dressing room. I think the players you mentioned... 
Alexis Sanchez and Anthony Martial, they're, they're the real problems there for him to solve. I'm, I'm, interested, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on what Pogba said about tactics and, that, and, and questioning the manager's yeah. tactics um, post-match. Is that, do you think that's acceptable for a, for a professional footballer to... to in, the dressing, in the dressing room, it's acceptable because you yeah. need conflict sometimes to resolve things and that's where the dressing room is sacred. In the media, it's not acceptable and, and any manager worth his salt wouldn't accept that behaviour from any player, whether it's Paul Pogba, who's a, who's a top, top, world-class footballer, or a young player coming into, into a, a first-team side. As soon as you start speaking and questioning the manager's tactics in the public forum, you're opening yourself up, you're opening the manager up to criticism. That's not going to help the team on the pitch. So I could completely um, understand Mourinho's decision in, in punishing almost that, that behaviour, because if one player starts questioning you publicly, it leaves yourself open to two or three or four doing that, and that's exactly what you don't want when you want to consistently win games of football. So my, my next question, moving this debate on, guys, has to be, is Mourinho helping himself? Um, <laughs> he, against West Ham United last weekend, when they were beaten 3-1, he opted to play Scott McTominay, a, a young and relatively inexperienced central midfielder in the heart of a back three, a, a, a formation he's used maybe 10, 12 times in the past eight months or so, and that's not including the close season. So... Liam, as a professional footballer and as someone who you know has played Premier League standard for so, so many years, in a dressing room, if, if you get a guy named as a central defender, as a central midfielder in your team, do, do you go out thinking, well, first of all, do you worry for that player that he's been put in a position? Secondly, do you feel like the, the team is being weakened by the manager's decision to play a player at a position? Uh, and therefore, is the attitude of the team going out in the pitch one that well, we might have thought we were going to win this match, but maybe, maybe it's in doubt now. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I think naturally as players you do, you obviously care about wanting to win a game of football and you, you hope your coach or manager picks the right team to help you do that. But this goes back to my point again. When you don't have a clear philosophy or way of playing, where it's not just the system. I don't know the, the way that Jose wants to play football. You, when you don't have that, you, you find yourself constantly looking for ways to adapt and change your, your sides. You know, we see Pep Guardiola do it sometimes. He changes from a back four to a back three, but the principles of his play in terms of keeping possession and pressing the ball are exactly the same. I don't know what Manchester United are. Sometimes they go long if they're struggling up to Fellaini and Lukaku. Sometimes they look to try and play out through De Gea. They, there's not a clear, consistent plan running through the club or the team. So when you're a young player like Scott McTominay coming in, you're not given a clear set of instructions or principles for which to apply your, to apply your role. So that's really important for them moving forward is that no matter who's playing, they have clear instructions. I don't see that, which surprises me because Jose Ferrari's career has been known to be someone who's so consistent on the training pitch, someone who completely knows the way he wants to play. And at the moment, he just looks like he's going from plan to plan to try and get the right recipe for success. And it's just not working at the moment. Duncan, you've been a student of uh, Mourinho, it's fair to say, um, along with me, I guess, for the last 14 years or more since he came into um, English football with Chelsea uh, in 2004. Have you ever seen Jose Mourinho make such an obvious tactical error in a team set-up and a team selection? Yeah, I think, um, I think with Mourinho, the, the, 
one element that's important to him is, is he's prepared to play different ways um, for different game situations. And he, and, and he has always spent a lot of time looking at the opposition and setting his team up in a way he feels can best exploit the opposition's weaknesses and, and, and minimise his own team's weaknesses. And I think with Manchester United, what you're seeing with this, you know, the, the, the rapid changes of style and ways of playing is he's not confident in his back line. And he, he's trying to come up with solutions to, um, to strengthen the team by using different tactical shapes. And it doesn't always work. And, and you're, to answer your question, I've never seen um, a, a, Mourinho, a Mourinho team make go in with um, such a big tactical risk um, in, in the sense you're putting a, a young, um, inexperienced, albeit Scotland international, but he's in his second uh, season as a, as a, as a senior professional. Um, he had trained in central defence last season and, and this season, but he never played as a central defence, as a professional footballer before. Um, and you're, you're, you're doing that while changing your shape, um, while dropping your captain, while uh, dropping Alexis Sanchez, your, your um, joint highest paid player. Um, and after having a very public um, disagreement fight with with your your other most expensive, most prominent player, um, for me he was trying to make a statement with that selection, not just in the tactics, but also in the players he was selecting, the players he left out, and and that that's quite Mourinho-like. Um, but the risk was huge, and you have to say it backfired badly. Um, I don't didn't see the sense in playing a back three um, against uh, um, you know, in a West Ham United side that are set up with one centre forward and, uh, and uh, four across the, the second line attacks so play quite wide. Um, I know what Mourinho wanted with McTominay was kind of why he used Herrera in, in central defence against uh, Tottenham, which is to have a player with better passing ability and more confidence in the ball, bringing it out from the back. But you, you have to say it didn't work. What was even more surprising for me was he didn't change it. Usually with Mourinho, when things aren't working, he's very quick to uh, move to the plan B and even the plan C in a game. Um, instead, he went all the way to half time, no change. He, he then put the same 11 out um, for the first 10 minutes. Of, of the second half before he switched to a back four, which gave them a lot more um, grip on the game and, and, and sorted some of the problems. But yeah, I, I, think, um, I think that that's the worst um, uh, tactical uh, managerial selection I've seen from Mourinho and surprising in, in, the, way, in, in the, the slowness with which he responded to try and change things. And, um, and, it, and it couldn't come at a worse time for him because... Obviously, losing away to West Ham United with the, the, the week that had preceded it, with the, the weeks uh, that, that had gone into this season, everything was going to come on to him. Every, every aspect of that defeat was going to be placed at his feet. And he now faces a game tonight um, in the Champions League where um, he badly needs a result. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be magnified again. 
for all you um, <clears throat> eagle-eared listeners, if I can say that, probably owl-eared listeners, I should say, who might get some background noise, uh, we, I want to point out that we're respecting the fact that the Emerson Senior's joining us from the training ground. So the, yeah, sorry about that, noise, guys. I'm right you, in the middle of it. That's okay. No, no worries, Liam. No worries. I'm just saying we respect the fact that you're a man at work and we and you've joined us uh, from your place of work. Liam, I, I want to ask your opinion on, on that team selection. Um, you said before that it does tend to have an effect on uh, players who are going out to play in that team. But <clears throat> as a coach and as someone who is about to complete his pro licence and has been coaching since the start of the season in Brighton's academy, the under-23s, um, is that a decision you take lightly? Or, as Duncan said, is it a statement about what you're trying to deal with in terms of your resources in the squad? No, no, it's completely understandable why you... You would change for on a game-to-game -game basis from one from aspect or one point of view. But for me, if you look at successful managers now, not just in football but across all sports, they all seem to have a fundamental philosophy of play, and and I think that's the way that most coaches are going. Because when you have that, players are clear in their instructions; they know what's expected of them, and you can start actually moving players in and out of position and changing their positions because they have the, an understanding of roles that you get from consistently playing the same way. Um, and with Jose. Yes, his success in the past has come from maybe adapting his game, but he's still at Chelsea playing 4-3-3 in the way he played at Porto, playing with a diamond. There was a clear methodology of play behind it. And this is the first time, even with Madrid, he played 4-2-3-1, found his way and stuck with it. And, and by the way, they beat the, probably the best club team of all time to, to a league title. I don't see that with this Manchester United team. I think that's their biggest problem. Um, and it worries me because Jose is someone that is a, is a young, aspiring coach, someone I look up to immensely. I think he's been incredible for our game. Yes, he has his, his faults, as we all do. But in terms of what he's done in the game, he's been incredible. And I think it will be a real, real shame for his legacy if he leaves a club the size of Manchester United in a worse position than when he took it. And for sure, at the moment, they seem to be in a worse position than they were when, when he first took the job. And going back to the point about not trusting his centre-halves, and this is why I talk about fundamental philosophy of play, because you see over the other side of Manchester, Pep Guardiola working with Otamendi and company still. They're still huge players and in, in, in part of his, in his side. Now, Mourinho's brought in Lindelof and Bailly as his own players, and now they're, they're both not in the team. So for me, there's something fundamentally wrong at the football club in terms of recruitment, in terms of strategy and philosophy. And it's coming back to bite them at a time when they really need to catch up with the likes of Liverpool, Chelsea and, and Manchester City. On that point, Duncan, should we have less sympathy for Mourinho on the basis that Bay was on the bench, Lindelof was on the field against West Ham and made you know, fairly foundational errors on two of the goals? Um, he was responsible, we assume, for buying those players in. Uh, if he can't coach them to be Manchester United's class players, then is he to, is he at fault? Uh, should we, as I said, should we have any more sympathy for him? I think I think you've got to analyse them against um, the the players that, that Liam's mentioned. Um, both are uh, Mourinho buys. Um, Bai, I think, was a, a very intelligent buy. They picked up a, a player who'd only really had a little bit of experience in La Liga. Um, who has the attributes to be a top defender, physical um, attributes uh, to be a top defender, but suffered a lot with, um, with injuries last season, um, which stalled his progress. And um, I'm told that, that he's, um, he's been kept out of the team because um, Mourinho feels he's not in the right place to play. He's actually protecting him, I think, since the Brighton match, um, interestingly enough, um, where he had such a, a poor performance. He's... He's, he's tried to keep him out of 
of the firing line. He still has a lot of faith in him and believes he can turn into the defender he wants. Lindelof was a was someone he was on board with, but was bought because he was cheaper than the alternative options. And and if you you take Bai and Lindelof together, you're looking at about sixty million pounds. Um, spent in transfer fees and relatively cheap wages because they were both at um, in minor leagues or, or not minor leagues but they were at, at less lower level clubs um, where uh, and early in their career so they weren't on high salaries to start with and you compare that to um, the purchases that Liverpool have made world record signing uh, Virgil van Dijk um, the highest paid centre back in the league on the same level as uh, Imeric Laporte who was uh, uh, 65, um, so 70 million euros total once you, you put in the, um, the FIFA uh, uh, solidarity payments. Uh, um, so, so there in America Laporte, you've got one player being brought in um, to be essentially a backup centre back for, um, for most of the second half of last season after he came into the club is now being used as a starting centre back for the price of those two um, combined together. So there is an element of, and, and Mourinho had said from the start, they needed an experienced centre-back. I don't think it, it's it, you have to be a football genius to see that Manchester United have been lacking a leader, top quality leader centre-back for several years now. Uh, and he'd identified that, uh, that as a position which he wanted to recruit in, but was never granted enough uh, resources to actually get the level of player who could go straight in and be reliable and lead that defence. So I do have some sympathy for, for Mourinho there, and um, but also, as you say, they were his signings. So um, Manchester United obviously will come under scrutiny again um, over the course of the next few days, and obviously on the Transfer Window podcast, we'll be analysing that in our next episode. However, on the basis that we've got someone uh, with us who we, um, you know, we like to unashamedly um, bleed dry our guests. And Liam Rossinger is someone with a whole lot of experience that we need to tap into. Um, Liam, not just in the back of the Josie Mourinho sort of story, but there obviously have been um, theories going around that perhaps he's not adapted <clears throat> to modern coaching. He made a comment himself in March 2017 where he said that the kind of conversation he could have with, say, a 23-year-old Frank Lampard at Chelsea in 2004 was not the kind of conversation he could have with any of his current Manchester United players because the culture had changed, players earn more, they have more power, they, they basically have, they have social media accounts where they can um, reply uh, to any criticism or respond to anything which goes on during games and everything else. How has coaching changed, Liam, from your time as a player, so starting out as a young lad, to now your time as, as making your way in coaching? Has, has it been a big shift in one way or another, which makes it either more or less difficult to be that man in charge? Players now, the millennials of, of this age, they, they want instant success. They don't want to know about the process. And they're also questioning more. So, yeah, you do have to adapt the way that you manage people and players. And that's something that... The master of that for me was Sir Alex Ferguson. How he managed it in the, in the beginning of his career compared to how he managed at the end of it, was he was almost two completely different characters with the same principles, but the way he managed people was different. And that's because he went with the times and that confrontational way of dealing with players that maybe worked 15, 20 years ago, you just can't afford to do it now. Because if you lose a player, uh, especially at that level, the likes of Pogba... Marshall, Sanchez, the amount of power they have in terms of the, their agents, the media, it just doesn't work. So you have to find 
and a different way to get people on board. And and I think that comes in terms of, again, I, I must sound like a broken record, but by having a philosophy, you create a culture where everybody is is together. You know, everyone's working in synergy. Everyone's working and understands their roles as part of a team. And I think that the coaches that have been outstanding in, in recent years have had that. And that's where maybe Jose, in terms of his adaptations as a coach in his career, has maybe fallen behind a little bit and, and needs to adapt himself. So you're saying, Liam, that what you need to do now is kind of simplify things for the players so they have that feeling of here's your six. Yeah, I've, I don't think I don't have the question of simplify. You, you need to have the answers why. Um, 20 years ago, if a coach said you run around that pitch three times until you until you throw up, the players would do it. If you said it to, to players now, they'll say why. So when you when and your fullback, your your reasoning of why to players is the way you play. Players want to not just win football matches, they want to improve individually. They want to be the best players they can become. And you have to give them uh, a process of doing that within a system that works. So in terms of coaching players as individuals, they need, you need to have buy-in from them, what's in it for them. Whereas in years gone by, uh, the power structure and between players and coaches completely changed. The dynamic has changed. Players have a lot more power now. It's just the nature of the game, the nature of society. And you have to adapt your ways of working in, in accordance with that. Liam, I, I heard lots of um, stories um, towards the end of Arsene Wenger's reign at Arsenal where um, players were complaining that uh, as a you know 60-plus man, you couldn't really relate to yeah. uh, younger players. You couldn't relate to their music, you couldn't relate to social media, you couldn't relate to their generation and their social yeah. culture and everything else. And you as a, as a young coach going into a dressing room with the under-23s, exactly, you're like 10 years older than them, but yeah. you live in effectively the same generation. Yeah. Is, do, do you feel like it's an advantage to have that, that bit of youthfulness on your side when you try to connect? Yeah, obviously wisdom is great and, and experience and, and life experience is great if you're an older coach. But as a younger coach, and yeah, if I take Jose Mourinho, for example, a lot of his best work was done as a young coach. Uh, David Moyes at Everton and Preston, a lot of his best work was done as a young coach uh, because you do have that relatability factor in terms of an understanding and empathy for, for what players are going through at this present moment. So there are pros and cons to being a young coach. It's not just all um, all good and it's not just all bad, but I think you have a better understanding of where players are, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch, how they conduct themselves, how they live their lives, um, what kind of demands of them in terms of... It, the, the internet, you know, Instagram, Twitter, how important that is to young players. It's, it's easy to say, oh, it's wrong and they shouldn't be so shallow, but that's just the way that the world is. So I'm quite lucky in the fact that I'm young enough to still be part of that age, still be able to relate to players and empathise with what they're going through. And that definitely helps in terms of your relationships of bringing young players through and developing them, not making them just better players, but better people as well. Is that something we saw on the training ground in those pictures last week where... Mourinho clearly was asking questions <laughs> about the post from the Derby County game uh, by Pogba and yeah. when it went out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Duncan, do you think that's a misunderstanding <laughs> or do you think there was something more sinister there? It does seem to have been a misunderstanding. It, it seems that um, um, Jose Mourinho was alerted to that post, interpreted it as being an act of dissent, um, understandably, and then uh, confronted Pogba with it on the training ground. Yeah, uh, but, Pogba explained himself, and uh, and it seemed that that explanation was accepted that it had gone. Yeah. As anyone not, who's... Sorry, sorry, Duncan. It's not coincidental that it was done out on the training pitch for me. He, he could have he could have spoken to Paul Pogba an hour before training in the training centre without the cameras there. I don't know how many times I've seen cameras at Manchester United's training ground while they're training. It's it, for me, it was completely staged. 
for me, it was a it was uh, worked out before that that would that scene would be played out in front of the media, and then therefore every Manchester United supporter or football supporter in general. I think it was a completely staged event, and Paul Pogba was was none the wiser of it. And I've seen it happen before uh, before with players in terms of when you want to. Put, dominate and be in a position of power and authority again as Jose Mourinho would want to do you make it seem that everything is against you almost he's always worked to that kind of way of everything's against me the players are against me and I think it was just another staged um, ploy in the whole saga between between Pogba and Mourinho which says as well Duncan um, that the Jose is quite old school because he believes the broadcast media is, is his social media <laughs> so he, and yeah. he used it accordingly True, and I think Liam's right. Jose Mourinho was absolutely aware that the cameras were there and um, he could have uh, said that to Pogba in advance away from the cameras and he, um, he obviously was aware they were there and wanted it to be broadcast and, it, and it, in a sense it backfired because Pogba had um, a credible reason um, for the Wi-Fi not working at Old Trafford as any journalist. <laughs> Who's covered the game there is, is well aware of and never depends on the on the the Old, the old Trafford Wi-Fi and um, so so then Josie Josie had to go into firefighting mode again the next day. What what I wanted to ask you, Liam, was um, after I mean Rio Ferdinand uh, the other day was saying was talking about social media um, and and the use of it by players and he was advocating that social media should be. Um, banned essentially for players during certain periods of the season, if not mm. all competitive um, time during the season. Do you think that's that's viable? No, it's not viable. You know, we we all have different, we're, we're human beings, we have different needs and, and a massive need of the of the modern day footballer is to interact on, on social media and you take that away from them and they feel not the same person. So we live in a different age now and yeah. whether you agree with it or not, you know, I'm quite old school. I'm not really into social media. I think, you know, in terms of interacting with people, it's always better to do it in person. But you can't take that away from from the next generation because that's just it's just a new age that we live in. And I think in in ways there's positives to it as well. You know, I remember being in watching games with my old man play at, for West Ham at Upton Park, and after a game, he'd go in have a pint with the fans in the players' lounge. You know, those days have long gone. So this is a way for fans to feel connected to players, which is what we all want for, for our game. We want fans to feel connected with players. We don't want that uh, disconnect between supporters and, and players. And, and But as long as it's used in the correct way, then then I don't see a problem with it. And we just have to kind of embrace it and, and accept it that this is a massive part of modern society and therefore a massive part of the modern footballer's life. Yeah, there's definitely positives to it. I, I agree with you. And I, and I think um, Rio Ferdinand's being a bit unrealistic there, given that a key element in Manchester United recruitment strategy exactly. these days players with, with huge social media profiles. Exactly. So you can't have it both ways. And that, I, I, that's a real shame because I think the most important way to recruit players is what happens on the football pitch. Because if you play well on the football pitch, your your followers will go up and your, your audience will go up anyway. It seems to be now that we're recruiting players based on things that really shouldn't cut, factor into the success of a, of a football club. And as top professionals that you two are, I'm very grateful to... Um have had that segue to go into our next topic of conversation, which will be um, the big match-up this Premier League weekend between Liverpool and Manchester City, two clubs who have yet to experience defeat in their domestic campaigns, both tied on 19 points, nine points ahead of Manchester United. Uh, I think uh, we all um, listen to with some um, both sympathy and a little bit of sense of humour about 
Pep Guardiola's comments regarding Benjamin Mendy, who, of course, is one of Duncan Castle's best friends on social media, and um, the way that he <laughs> uses it. And um, ask yourselves, well, yeah, if social media is here to stay, Pep Guardiola denied he even had WhatsApp the other day. I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Duncan, come on. How can Pep Guardiola not have WhatsApp? Surely he's got a love-in going on with these players. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, funnily enough, I don't think he does have a loving with his players. I think he, um, everything I hear from Manchester City and uh, Bayern Munich and Barcelona, he's actually very distant from his players and very demanding on his players. But it works for him because he delivers uh, results on the field and, and the players feel that they're improving on the pitch. So um, he's, yeah, he's actually probably quite old school in, in many ways, more old school and getting away with being old school than... than most managers are these days. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. At the end of the day, players want to want to win football matches and want to improve, and he seems to do that. So that they'll let they also let that side of things off. Um, it, in terms of the game on 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 the weekend, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I'm really looking forward to it. I think Chelsea have added another dimension to the to the Premier League this year with their performances, and hopefully, it will raise the bar for for these two clubs with two managers who who I really respect and love the way that both teams play. Liam, tactically. Um, we saw the only example, probably last season, of Pep Guardiola getting a spanking um, tactically yeah. um, by Jurgen Klopp. What do you think, as a coach, going into this game, Guardiola will have learned and what will he change uh, going to Anfield on Sunday? Well, it's really interesting. They, they did. They Obviously, the first leg of the of the European uh, Champions League game, Anfield-Liverpool were outstanding and could have scored four or five in, in the first half. But what what impressed me with Pep, and, and it's, it kind of got missed because in the end, Manchester City went out. But he changed the system and he went to a three and it gave them an extra man in midfield that Liverpool's midfield three couldn't cover. So I'm really interested to see if he'll adopt the same approach in, in this game because they battered Liverpool in the second leg. And if it wasn't for a linesman's flag when the goal should have been ruled on side, Manchester City could have gone through in that tie. So it's gonna, that's why I'm fascinated by, by the game on the weekend. I think it's going to be a great game. And Peps always seems to try new things, and he, but always within his structure and his principles of play. He will never change the fact he wants to dominate possession. He'll never change the fact he wants to counter-press high. And that does leave him vulnerable against the Liverpool team who have so much pace on the counter-attack and so much pace in their transition. So it's going to be a great game again. There's going to be goals and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing who comes out on top. Duncan, I think all of our um, uh, Transfer Window podcast audience will remember you being very critical of Pep's tactics both in the Premier League game as well as the Champions League game um, in terms of uh, Guardiola and the way he set his team up. How do you think he can change it? And and given what you've seen of Liverpool and Manchester City this season so far, do you think that's going to be uh, possible that, you know, again, Liverpool at home um, and, you know, what does Pep do to, to make things different? Well, I'm fascinated to see what he does. Um, I think if you, you watch the All or Nothing uh, documentary, um, there's a very interesting scene in there where uh, Guardiola's um, analyst, match analyst, in the game before they played Liverpool, it was actually at Everton, is, is saying, you know, Guardiola's talking to his staff and saying that their, their forwards are exceptionally good and it's a real problem for us. And the analyst is saying to him, I've noticed if you deny them space, you don't give them space to, to play into, um, they have they have real problems, and it, it's basically ignored. 
he go he went into the game in the press conference said i'm not going to change um he he did actually change he shifted his um his midfield setup and and put gundigan um on the right and and shifted them into different positions from where they normally are but used the same um counter high counter pressing strategy and it and it was it was a mess. It was the only time in the season I saw Manchester City players trying to drub, dribble themselves out of trouble. They all you know that their their game is about one pass, two pass, having angles available, moving the ball rapidly and they, they, they seem to not know where each other were in that, particularly in the first half against Liverpool and, and it all fell apart. Um I agree with Liam that they 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 were unfortunate um not to get um, Liverpool on the ropes in the, in the second leg. Um, and it, it would be interesting to see if he, did, if he tries to, to deny them space, if he tries to go for um, a more conservative style and just, just hit counter-attack, not press as high up the field. I'd be very surprised if he does it. I think he's got um, an element in their advantage in that Mo Salah is um, nowhere near the level he was at last season. Um, watching the game against Chelsea at the weekend, he had, I think, four um, clear opportunities and goal in the first half. Um, missed the target most of the time. So that, so that helps. There's not as much danger. There shouldn't be as much danger down the right-hand side where obviously they're missing Mendy at the moment. But I think what's difficult for them is that Liverpool have a better goalkeeper now. And I think, again, in that Chelsea match, Liverpool second half in particular, they risked so much to try and get into the game. I think there's a point where they had all of their players in the opposition half, even the centre-back um, in the opposition half, they were pressing so high, which you know gives you obvious chances to, to score on, on the break. Chelsea got in behind them several times and Alisson um, saved them several times. Otherwise, they, they would have been dead by the time they equalised. So Liverpool are, are, are going to be a tougher nut to crack in the sense they've got a better goalkeeper. Um, they've got a stronger midfield. Um, and I think mentally it's a tough game for Manchester City. They, they definitely have um, an apprehension about Anfield. Um, and the way they play is, is very dependent on confidence. You know, you can't, can't really play that way without having a great belief in your system and a great belief that things are going to go well. So I don't know, but it's going to be a great game to watch. Uh, so from the Everyone Loves Football to um, the Bromance, uh, which has inspired a quick fire around this uh, particular transfer window podcast. Uh, I'm going to throw uh, our guests uh, a name from um, football and see if they can replicate the uh, bromance of Tommy Fleetwood and Francesco Malinari um, of last week's Ryder Cup. I'd like to start with uh, Liam and ask you about a uh, teammate of yours, um, necess- not necessarily someone who is easy to love, but Glenn Murray. <laughs> Good question, Glenn. Yeah, he, he's a he's a very difficult individual at the best of times in terms of getting a smile out of him. So, in terms of another footballer, I think it would be someone would be great from someone like Benjamin Mendy because he seems to like everyone <laughs> and have loads of friends. So, I think put the pair of them in a room together and you might get a smile out of Glenn Murray because he he definitely needs it at times. Magic, Duncan, Marcus Rashford. Uh, Marcus Rashford, it has to be Jesse Lingard. They're, uh, they're always on social media together, so we're just waiting for Manchester United to organise um, uh, a video of them in bed together with the next Manchester United trophy between them and, and marking each other out of five. I feel guilty about this, Liam, because um, he was your manager at Hull City, but 
Uh, I can't resist the fact he's got a face only a mother could love. Steve Bruce. <laughs> Good question. Uh, Steve's a, he's, a, he's, he's having a difficult time for things at the moment. So uh, who would I think? Who would he get on with great? Uh, do you know what I'm going to say his son, Alex? He, um, <laughs> <laughs> he would pick him a lot of the time when there was question marks over that. So, yeah, we'll get them in a room together. I'm sure they'll get on just fine, him and Alex. And finally, Duncan, the one and only ginger legend, Steve Sidwell. Steve Sidwell, well, um, a wee Scottish bird told me that he might, uh, his ideal bromance party might be someone who's involved in this podcast at the moment. <laughs> I thought that might happen when I heard his name come up. You've been I set just... up, son, you've been set up. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it, Liam. It, no, is, is... He's a top man, Sid. I've literally just, uh, just passed him by in the training ground. I see it, it's really nice to see him every day. And, you know, we're going through the same things at the moment. We're both recently retired. Uh, and both moving into the next part of our career. So we've got a lot to talk about for sure. And uh, he's had a great career and he's got all the respect of, of everyone at this football club and rightfully so. And I'm sure whatever he does in the future, he'll be a success. Well, gentlemen, that's only down to me. I to say thank you very much for your contributions today. They've been insightful as always and um, a joy to have you with us. It's time to close this particular transfer window, but I would like to say if you want to continue the discussion, you can do so on Twitter. At Transfer Podcast is our Twitter handle. While Liam Rossignor is on at Rossignor, then lowercase dash Liam23, and then at Duncan Castles, obviously. And uh, myself, I'm at Garbo SJ. So until next time, when hopefully it will be just as quality product as we've had today, I say stay classy, people, with Duncan Castles. <laughs>